Just liberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Just liberty.org. Just liberty.org. Hello, I'm Amanda Marzullo. A Granberry man was arrested after texting 911 dozens of times from a bar to complain about alleged overserving, overcharging, and poor service. So, Scott, was this an appropriate use of our emergency response system? Well, the arresting officers didn't think so. But in my defense, by the time they put the cuffs on, I was three sheets to the wind. <laughs> so, as far as I'm concerned, that overserving allegation was totally justified. People have to be held accountable, man. You know, I'm, I'm not going to you know, th- dispute that. I, I, I'm just having trouble understanding your beef here. I mean, over-serving and poor service, is it over-serving sort of the cornerstone of proper wait staff <laughs> etiquette? I just felt an obligation. I really did. It, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It, you know, you see something, say something. That's, that's what all the signs say. I'm just following the lead of Homeland Security. <laughs> and that's who you want to be following. I'm glad. I'm glad you've picked your role models so well, Scott. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the January 2018 edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, whose day job is Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? I'm excited to talk about the Thomas Whitaker case who's scheduled for execution in February. Yeah, you had a great interview with his father. Yes. First up, though, the Dallas Morning News published a story this month about the process by which the Texas Department of Criminal Justice decides which books to ban from inmates and which one it allows. Scott caught up with reporter Lauren McGahey, who described an odd array of books banned from Texas inmates and some alarming ones that are routinely allowed. Yeah, there were a lot of surprises, as you can imagine, going through about 10,000 banned books um, and a lot more that are on the allowed book list. Uh, Some of the most surprising ones were there was a book uh, written by 50 Cent, you know, the rapper, that went into detail about the criminal drug trade, and that was on the allowed list. But then there was, you know, the famous economics book, Freakonomics, um, which had a section on abortion and a section on drugs, and that was banned for, you know, what they called racial content. So, you know, there was there was just a lot of things that seemed kind of incongruous and didn't make a lot of sense. Probably no racial content in 50 cents. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've never read it. But, you know, the, the title and description alone, uh, you know, at, at least went into detail about uh, the drug trade. So or, or Mein Kampf, which no racial content there. Probably. No, no. David Duke's uh, book arguing uh, for separation of the races was also on the allowed list, uh, which I would I would assume that has some racial content in it if he's uh, arguing for that so one imagines yeah and the process by which tdc makes those decisions is rudimentary at best it's kind of interesting because you would assume that maybe there's some kind of a committee or something that goes through every single request or or makes these decisions from kind of uh, some lofty place in some boardroom but the first decision is actually made by the mail clerk in the facility where the inmate is living so if the inmate is incarcerated uh, someplace and they order a book um, that book comes into the mail room and that 
individual gets to decide whether they think it should be on the allowed list or the banned list. That person is not a male clerk. They're a literary critic. <laughs> in, that, in that sense, they are. Um, now, the inmate can appeal that and, you know, try to fight the decision if, if the book ends up on the ban list. But if they lose, you know, they, they oftentimes have to pay to have it sent back or to a friend or they'll burn it or, you know, get rid of it, something like that. So We're burning books. Uh, well, you know, maybe I should take that back. I don't know if they're actually incinerated, but the, the books are disposed of, I believe, was, was the term if they couldn't find an alternative for it. So, you know, it's I think that is the crux of what they might be looking at now that they're reviewing the policy is, is the mail clerk the perfect person to be making that decision right off the bat? Because obviously it's going to be very subjective person to person. So Scott, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason here. So what's going on? Well, it's a really strange situation because the there's an incredibly vague policy in place and it's being implemented by the lowest possible people on the totem pole. Literally, the people in the mailroom who receive the mail are the ones calling the shots on this. And so it really just appears to be a complete backwater where no one has examined this at all. And the policy that they're actually basing this on, you had pointed this out to me, really doesn't even mention a lot of the things that they're supposedly banning books based on. There's no category in the TDCJ policy that says that racial content needs to be banned, and yet that was the basis that they banned Freakonomics from being in a prison library. So I found it very bizarre, and I was happy that uh, Chairman James White sought out a, a review of this policy, and TDCJ is now reviewing it because a lot of it didn't make much sense. You know, a lot of it doesn't seem to make sense. It would be interesting to look at the decisions and see how they're being made because it's sort of pointing out how something is implemented is policy at the end of the day. But um, especially in a prison where the, the prisoners have very little ability to control their own situation, their own lives, very few alternatives. They don't get to go to the bookstore if the book they don't they want is not in the prison library. <laughs> yeah, no. So we'll keep watching this story and see how it develops. Next up, the Texas State Bar's Committee on Legal Services to the Poor and Criminal Matters has issued a report that's highly critical of the State Council for Offenders, the legal department representing inmates at TDCJ, alleging the agency is chronically underfunded and understaffed, and that TDCJ interferes with the legal decisions of attorneys there on behalf of their clients. Mandy, tell us a little about the committee study and what they found. So Scott Ehlers, who is the primary author on this book and is responsible for doing the lion's share of the work, conducted a survey of the State Council for Offenders staff and you know and former staff and, and former staff right. yeah and, and a number of stakeholders including i believe the prosecution in in this instance to kind of get a sense of what is going on there and he's they sort of pointed to two key findings and the first is a lack of independence of this organization um it's clear that the tdcj board is influencing the staff's decision on individual cases which you know, raises serious questions. And I want to say questions about whether this organization is structured in a way that allows for, you know, the ethical handling of defense cases. You know, one attorney reported that he was told not to make certain arguments. Right. That was on the civil commitment in, uh, for sexual offenders. 
And this has been an area where TDCJ has been under immense amounts of litigation over the, in recent years and has had lots of problems. And so TDCJ has an obvious interest in not having certain defense arguments against its position made in a strong fashion. And the fact that they control the defense lawyers and are able to dictate which arguments mm-hmm. they make and don't really was astonishing. There was this one attorney who said that they, along with the rest of the civil commitment section, were told not to pursue a certain type of defense in civil commitment cases. That's pretty explicit. There was another one very similarly um, where they were directed to withdraw from representing a client after their director returned from a board meeting. And so, as you say, this, this does raise questions. Now, the flip side of this is this is based almost entirely on a survey. There's not a rigorous investigative report or an audit or something that extreme behind this. This is a survey and for the most part is just reporting what these attorneys said in response and making an analysis based on that, um, analyzing it in in, – Based on the Bar Association's 10 standards for indigent defense, Mm -hmm. and I thought that was a reasonable thing to compare it to, that the the Bar Association standards, but it's hard to say that the survey just proved these points. It raised questions that now some reporter or state agency or legislative committee or someone needs to take this and And delve further into into it. it. That's right. It's a red flag but, is red, what it is. Yeah, exactly. And the other big piece was just sort of the underfunding of this organization. And it's, I, I will say that this is a, I think this is indicative of a big problem within our criminal justice system in general. But there really is one-to-one parity in this instance between the state council for offenders and the prosecuting agency that handles these cases. Nearly everyone who is in TDCJ's custody does not have a job and therefore is indigent and cannot afford the cost of their legal representation. And likewise, the prosecutors are going to handle every single case that that needs to be filed. So it's one-to-one, yet the State Council for Offenders is funded only at a 75% rate, roughly, uh, or has, you know, three-quarters of the budget, let's say, uh, that the prosecution office does. And if you look at that, that is probably still only captures a piece of the underfunding. Another thing is that prosecutors in Texas have an independent fund for their pensions. So it... That is something that's a line item that is eliminated from every prosecutor's budget, period. So in this agency, you say has 75 percent of the budget of the prosecutor. You then they're also paying for their lawyers pensions and the prosecutor's agencies are not. So that's really even less money available for actually handling the cases. Yeah. So we're talking about like their their overhead and staff salaries and benefits is going to be substantially higher. To, you know, several thousand dollars, probably, you know, per lawyer, per right. lawyer, you know, 10 to 15 percent higher. Next up in our August and October podcast, Scott and I discussed a new book out last year, which was co-authored by Ron DeLord, who is the founder of the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas. He was also the lead negotiator for the union side on the Austin police contract that was famously rejected by the city council last month. 
We'll publish the full interview soon, but for now, here's an excerpt in which Delord predicted the end of defined benefit pensions for police officers within the next couple of decades. I'm here today with Ron DeLord, who has a long and storied history with the Texas Police Union Movement. Ron, I'm really happy you came to talk with me today. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. I apologize for my voice. It's a allergy season in Austin. One of the themes in the book mm-hmm. is that the Police Union Movement has been so successful at accumulating power and boosting wages and getting very generous pension benefits that... You're at a moment in history where you expect a backlash. In fact, I've said a couple of times in earlier podcast segments that some of your comments were really very prescient and almost like you were looking into a crystal ball on you know, some of the pension fights at the legislature, the, the Austin police contract, and, and some of this. Let, let's start with pensions. Okay. Um, the legislature this session came and did this big corrective. I know the Dallas pension had gotten to the point where they were fearing it would literally bankrupt the city if, if nothing had happened. And the, and the Houston pension was perhaps a few years behind that mm-hmm. in, in terms of getting to a crisis. But um, uh, talk to us a little about whether or not have the unions overreached because none of the uh, cities really have fully funded the pensions out. They're not contributing enough to, to cover them. Eventually, those bills are going to come due, and, and we've had this can't tax them. The legislature is going to limit their ability to generate more revenue. Are we reaching a crisis point here, that, or, is the, or has the Dallas and Houston fix done it? No. Now, <clears throat> I, I, I preach a lot about just the paradigms that change and the change agents that drive a paradigm shift, and we're in a paradigm shift. I said this back in 07, and no police union leader believed me. 08, we had the recession. It just hid some of the problems for a while, and those problems have come back. And I believe that, uh, and when I tell police this, it's just that I don't believe in a defined benefit plan. In fact, I think every American ought to have one, that the employer ought to be required to put money in a fund, and you as a worker ought to be required to put it in there, and you shouldn't be able to take it out and spend it and we should have, and I know it's Big Brother making you do something, but the problem is the bulk of Americans have no pension now, and there's going to be serious, serious troubles where there already are coming. So we're we're moving out of defined benefit plans as a nation, and that's sad in many ways. And the big change agents were the the failure of the AFL-CIO, to the, its decline. It's not that I don't like them, but you go from – you know, 30, 40% of the, of the work, private sector workforce to six, you're almost reaching a point of being irrelevant. That's right. And so because people have abandoned the unions and because those unions who had the same benefits are out, the private sector now is only down to a very small percentage. In fact, there's virtually no major company has a defined benefit plan. And once they leave and leave just the public sector, What's happened is is kind of a strange deal. A friend of mine, Tyler Eisen, who was president of the Los Angeles Police Protective League, he's retired, made a very astute observation. He said, when we made little money 
and we got 50% and could retire at 20 years, nobody really cared. And we could go and just like the military, we'd do 20 and we'd go work somewhere else. And that'd just be a little piece of our life. But over time, we built in higher and higher wages. We moved that 50% to 75% to 80% to 90%. But we kept raising the wages also. And because it's a, there is a lot of risk in it because the money is not just what you put in. It has to make money in the market. And when the markets uh, are volatile, which they have been in these recessions, you get in a hole. And then employers don't want to catch up. We're going to a system comparable to Australia. If you look at Australia, and I've spent a lot of time there, they started phasing out defined benefit plans uh, 20 some odd, 25, 30 years ago. So you have all these layers where you might have a pension, but the next person would go to what they call superannuation, which is like a 401k. We will transition out of defined benefit. It may be 20, 25 years, but, and I tell the police this. I like it. I think it's designed for the military. It's designed for places where we want your service for 30 years or so. But the truth is we've got to make it such that uh, it'll change. And what it'll do, what it did to Australia when they went over, is you will not have police stay for long periods of time. You will have police uh, react just like the private sector. In Australia, the average male officer works 14 years. The average female, seven that seven is probably about the first time they have a child. Mm-hmm. And then they, they go on because it doesn't really matter. Because so when an officer gets there about 14 years as a male, they've done and seen it, they go on. So they constantly hire. And the police forces are very, very young. And that has become acceptable to them that they're always training and they basically recruit you like the military. Come on over and spend, do public service, work in the police service. And when you get tired go on. There's not a fixed day for you to leave. Right. That's where we're going. And there's a lot of pluses and minuses in that. And, I'm, and I try to get, when I speak to police groups, for them to understand we're going to a new world in many ways. Now, it isn't bad per se, it, but it is going to be different. Now it's time for errors and updates. First, correcting a small error. In last month's podcast, we discussed a case styled Ex Parte Pena about a cop who'd stolen drugs and planted fake drugs to frame a suspect. But halfway through the conversation, I began mistakenly referring to Mr. Flores, confusing the case in my mind with the capital defendant accused by a witness who'd undergone hypnosis. The analysis was fine. I just confused the name. Which happens all the time. And now for an update. In the September podcast, Scott and I discussed the use of risk assessments in Harris County and ongoing federal litigation there about unconstitutional bail practices. This month, the State Commission on Judicial Conduct issued a rare sanction, and I want to emphasize that these are rare, against three of those magistrates for failing to issue personal bonds so that defendants may be released. According to the Houston Chronicle, these magistrates said that they had been told by Harris County criminal court judges that they should not grant cash-free bonds or more affordable bond rates, and they said that they feared they would be fired if they didn't comply. 
This testimony corroborates the federal court's finding that magistrate judges in Harris County have been unconstitutionally detaining poor defendants because they can't pay a bail bondsman. The Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is expected to rule soon in this case, and we'll have an update when that happens. Last update. The police union in Austin chose not to re-enter negotiations after the city council rejected a negotiated contract last month leaving Austin police operating without a contract for the first time since the 1990s. Estimates of high numbers of officer retirements because of the city council vote turned out to have been overstated by as much as tenfold. Only five more officers retired than in 2015, for example, and now the city finds itself with up to $10 million that can and should be spent on other priorities. Next up, our segment, Death in Texas, in which Mandy delves into a case out of Fort Bend County where the victim's family is opposing a death sentence, including his father, who was injured during the crime. Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, known as Bart to his family, is scheduled for execution in February for his role in arranging an attack on his family, in which his mother and brother died and his father was injured. But his father, Kent Whitaker, is seeking clemency for his son, asking the Board of Pardons and Paroles and Governor Abbott to commute his sentence to life in prison. Mandy spoke with Mr. Whitaker about his campaign to save his son's life. We'll publish the full interview soon, but for now, here's an excerpt from their conversation. Thank you, Mr. Whitaker, for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Why should the Board of Pardons and Paroles change your son's sentence? One of the jobs that the Pardons and Paroles Board has is to uh, be an oversight on the legal system and to make corrections whenever there's something that just is an error that gets through the system, and I think that's the case here. I think the district attorney overstepped in pursuing the death penalty in this case in the first place, and uh, I'm just asking the board to listen to that and to consider uh, giving him life in prison instead of the execution. What about the decision to seek death was an overstep? I think what the the overstep involved in their decision to pursue the death penalty versus life in prison, they were offered two back-to-back 40-year first-degree murder life in prison uh, options, but they chose to pursue the death penalty anyway, which I understand is their choice. But what makes this egregious is that every victim, and I'm talking about my wife's family, my family, myself, everyone that was involved as a victim in this case pleaded with them for 18 months not to pursue the death penalty so that we could avoid the horrors of a trial and then what we're facing now, a possible eventual execution. Uh, I think they overstepped by pursuing that when they should have uh, given the the victims a little bit more right in uh, what penalty they pursued. Given the nature of the crime in this case, are you tarnishing your wife and son's memories? No, actually, I I think I'm uh, doing just the opposite. I think I'm honoring their memory. I know I'm honoring what they would want to do in this case. Uh, the idea that there's going to be another death on their name that would be uh, that would be horrific to them. Uh, anybody that knew Tricia or Kevin even just a little bit knows that this is not what they would want, uh, not at all. And uh, I just uh, I just want the board to understand just how appalled they both would be at um, the possibility of BART being executed. Texas is a conservative state. Is clemency for your son consistent with its mindset? 
Well, as a conservative myself, I don't think it does. Um, I think a real conservative would do the same thing if they were in my shoes. Because uh, I've been a law and order guy all my life and always will be. But that doesn't mean that I always give a rubber stamp approval to everything that our uh, officials tell us to do. I think it's really important to have a touch of healthy skepticism. Otherwise, you have things like Nazi Germany where everybody just went along. And in this case, I think the district attorney overstepped. Uh, it was a decision that should not have been made, and I just feel like it's my responsibility to call them to it. Um, this is kind of inbred in me, I guess. I'm a fifth-generation Texan, and my great-great-great, however many greats it is, grandfather fought at San Jacinto, and uh, I just believe this is a 100% conservative Texas law and order kind of decision. So what actions can the board take? Um, well, really, um, really the board only has two choices. Um, either they deny mercy to me and go ahead and kill him, or they, too, recommend that the governor uh, change his sentence to a life in prison versus the execution. And, by the way, this isn't asking for anything really special here. The board, the public, and district attorneys all over the state of Texas routinely defer to victims on whether to spare the life of a killer. And I'm just asking for the same courtesy. Is this a case about forgiveness? You know... I understand that there are people who don't get it, how I could forgive my son, but we're not asking anybody to forgive him. We're just asking to let him live. There's a big difference between forgiveness and commutation. Uh, a commutation uh, just means that you're changing the sentence for something to be more appropriate. It doesn't say that you're forgiving them, letting them off the hook, reducing the uh, the um, severity of the consequences of their act. It just means that there's a more appropriate, uh, more uh, justified uh, sentence that they would give him. And that's all we're asking. There's a, we're not asking anybody to forgive him. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I am ready. The Court of Criminal Appeals recently set aside the cases of Stanley Mosey and Dennis Allen, affirming the trial court's finding that prosecutors withheld exculpatory evidence and information about informants. The men were represented by attorneys from the National and State Innocence Projects, but the High Court did not agree to the men's actual innocence claims. That means they're not entitled to compensation for their false convictions despite evidence of extreme prosecutor misconduct. Mandy was justice served. Well, that remains to be seen. The issue of whether they will be entitled to um, to state compensation is a subject of is the subject of ongoing litigation before the federal court. But it was justice that they, these men have had their sentences reversed or their convictions reversed and that they're back out. Absolutely. A long time coming. Yeah. Felony filings in Oklahoma County, the county seat of which is Oklahoma City, fell 24% after voters in the state approved a reduction in drug penalties that lowered user-level possession in most instances to a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Filings may have dropped even more, but the new law didn't take effect until July. So Scott, what conclusions can we draw from Oklahoma's experiment? That it has worked spectacularly. 
that everything the proponents said were the reasons to pass this law actually have been the case. We have lowered prison populations. We have fewer people in the courts. We have fewer people with felony records. And there's been no spike in crime, even though that's what the DAs and the opposition was predicting. We can take from it that it's a huge success, and Texas legislators and legislators in other states should follow suit. We now know this works. Okay, last one. The first of the cases from the Twin Peaks Biker Massacre in Waco is finally going to trial. The 150-plus defendants were charged with first-degree felonies, which carries a sentence up to life in prison. But people who've seen the evidence say all the actual perpetrators were killed during the event. Prosecutors offered plea deals of deferred probation on a misdemeanor charge, and defendants so far have turned even that down. So, Mandy, why would anyone turn down deferred probation when they risk life in prison going to trial? You turn down deferred probation in these circumstances if you don't think the prosecution can prove their case and you think your rights have been violated. These are some squirrely cases. Yeah. We're out of time. We'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Hanson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next month with another edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Shout out to Brandy Grissom. Congratulations on qualifying for the Boston Marathon. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs>